0: The innovation delusion, how our obsession with the new has disrupted the work that matters most, Andy Russell and I examine how our culture's fetish for the new and shiny has distracted us from other important activities and values, including maintenance, repair, and care. Often in our society today, the word innovation just means good. It's taken to be a value in itself which Andy and I argue it can never be. Innovation, which is just the diffusion of new things into society, can never be more than a means to an end. The question is, what end are we trying to reach? When we dig deeper into the notion of innovation, though, and ask what is it supposed to get us, often the answer is growth. Early innovation thinking is tied up with the history of thinking about economic growth, but the notion of innovation over the years has become associated with all kinds of growth, from organizational growth to personal growth. Growth follows a logic of addition. It's all about adding more. And yet when we turn to maintenance, we see that growth sometimes sets us up for failure. For example, Chuck Marone of the organization Strong Towns has argued that U.S. infrastructure policy encourages municipalities to build new infrastructure without taking into account how they're going to pay for maintenance down the road. And often these cities lack a tax base to do that work. It was with all these thoughts in mind that I first bumped into Lydie Klotz's interesting book, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. As Lydie shows throughout the book, we pile on to-dos, but don't consider stop-doings. We create incentives for good behavior, but don't get rid of obstacles to it. We collect new and improved ideas, but don't prune the outdated ones. Every day, across challenges big and small, we neglect a basic way to make things better. We don't subtract. Leidy, who is a professor of engineering at the University of Virginia, sits at a really interesting intersection between engineering, design, and experimental psychology. His pioneering research shows us what is true whether we're building Lego models, cities, or strategic plans. Our minds tend to add before taking away. And this is holding us back. Subtract is one of those books that, if it gets really deep into you, deep enough, can change the way you see the world and your own activities. I had a lot of fun chatting with Lydie, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Get excited. Heidi, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Yeah, thank you, Lee. Some of my best friends are at Virginia Tech, and um, also uh, uh, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law now graduated from there. So cool, man. I, I don't institution—I don't institutionally dislike you. <laughs> cool. cool. I
0: am—I'm too fresh to Virginia to really buy into these rivalries. So uh, w- we're in a good spot, I think. So uh Subtract is is a neat book. When you tell strangers about it, uh what do you tell them it's about and what you were trying to do with it?
1: Uh it's about this way of making change that we systematically overlook. Um and what I was trying to do with the book is help um help people see that this is the potential in this in making change this way uh and help them stop overlooking it a little bit.
0: Yeah, so I I really love, I mean, you have a neat kind of personal story about how you came to write this book or like part of it. I mean, you've been thinking about subtraction for a long time, it seems like, but there was also a kind of moment it it came together for you. So tell us a little bit about Legos and how it got you thinking about this problem.
1: Yeah, I'm playing Legos with my son, who he's seven now, but he was two or three at the time and uh, we were playing with his Duplo blocks, making a bridge. And the problem we had was the bridge wasn't level. And so I tried to solve this problem. I turned around behind me to grab a block to add to the shorter column. Uh, By the time I had turned back around with the block in my hand, my son had removed a block from the longer column. And like you said, I'd always been interested in kind of minimalist design. I mean, my engineering and architecture background, I've always found those things interesting. Plus I'm really interested in sustainability. So Mm -hmm. there's an inherent advantage there. Um, But this helped me really focus in on the act. And I was like, that's what I'm interested in, the act of of taking away and even you know so it was really helpful for me to hone my own thinking also gave me a way to share that thinking with other people um so i would take the bridge uh bridge um, problem around with me to my meetings with students and have them do it and they would add like i did and then i took it to uh, my friend and collaborator behavioral science collaborator gabe adams and had her do it. And I mean, she's a genius, number one. Plus, I had been talking to her about what I thought was subtracting for a long time, trying to convince her on how we could do some basic research on it. <laughs> and so I thought she would at least subtract, but she added. And then when I explained it to her, she's like, Oh, what you're what you're interested in is why don't we subtract to make things better? And I was like, Well, yeah, that's what I thought <laughs> I'd been talking about all along. But, yeah. Um, so it's uh, the Lego has proven really, really helpful. And um, I'll say one last thing about it. I mean, we've since done a, a ton of research, yeah. but the, the research really maps with what happened to me in that moment, you know, kind of analyzing it retrospectively, which is that it's not that we can't think of subtracting, it's that we think of adding first, right? Yeah. And that's what happened to me in that moment. I thought, okay, what can I add? And I was on my way to adding um before even considering if if subtracting might have offered a better Solution um, and so that's it's been a really great example because as lego's a three-year-old, but it also maps really closely with the the underlying cognitive process mm-hmm. that, that's happening and causing us to overlook subtraction and in, in more consequential um, Designs and changes.
0: Yeah, so I mean like you you work at a really interesting like intersection of engineering and architecture and city planning and, and behavioral science, so Give us just like, I mean, you, in the kind of first body chapter, you really give, you really go through a bunch of different experiments you you did to kind of get at, you know, where this is coming from and the mechanisms and stuff. But can you just give us a taste of like one or two of the experiments you ran um, to try
1: to uncover this? Well, I mean, we'll stay with Legos for the first one. So one of the criticisms of the Lego bridge, right, is that, well, people just might like adding if they add to that one. Right. And you basically get the same level bridge whether you add a block or subtract a block. So it's equal amount of effort. So, a, a really easy, obvious answer there could be just be that, well, adding's better. That's why we add in that scenario. And so we needed um, to see if that was, in fact, true, if that was a fair criticism. We created a, a Lego example where you, basically you're protecting a, a stormtrooper from getting crushed by a masonry block. And <laughs> One way to solve it is to add eight Legos. Um, another way to solve it is to remove one Lego. Hmm. And you, we gave people money to, um, and gave them money at the start of the experiment and charged them money for each block that they yeah. moved. Um, and so when they added, in that case, it was proof that they didn't think, not necessarily they thought it was better, it was that they just weren't thinking of yeah. the subtractive option. Now that's, um, Shows that people add to their detriment, but only when they're trying to protect a Lego from a masonry (laughs) block falling. So it's it's a very limited kind of uh, transferability. Uh, Probably my my favorite experiment that we or the experimental setup that we used are these grid patterns on a computer screen. Um, And so we did this with Legos, travel itineraries, writing. Which I was surprised people added to writing and Mm like well. That goes against all the advice we get about writing, but it's you know it's a powerful bias we have to add. Um, but all of those could be could be subject to the same criticism. Well, that's just what we do in those cases, mm-hmm. right? That's just what we do when we're playing Legos. That's just what we've been taught to do when we're writing. Um, but the, the grid paradigm that we developed, is basically having people make grid patterns symmetrical on a computer screen, and you could change these grid patterns by adding blocks to them or by subtracting blocks from them, which we gave people practice doing ahead of time. And basically, we created grid patterns that could be made symmetrical by either adding blocks to three corners or subtracting blocks from one corner. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a variety of these patterns, but that was, was basically the same in all of them. And so when people added to three corners in those paradigms, again, with the same um, instructions that to do this in as few clicks as possible, that, that wasn't something that could be explained by, okay, yeah. people just do this when playing with grids because it's not something that they had practice with. Um, and it also gave us a pretty uh, useful, um, you know, when we were doing the stormtrooper studies, it was really hard to, uh, <laughs> hard to get participants um, to, to do that. It takes a long time and a lot of uh, resources go into that. But with the, the computer patterns, you can do a lot of studies over and over and we, can, we could change things really quickly. So the, the grid patterns, in addition to showing that people overlooked subtraction, even when it was better, we could also change things about the grid patterns to help understand why this was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so back to this idea of, well, Is it happening because they're thinking of adding first? Um, And so one of the things we did with the grid patterns was give people a reminder, hey, you can add or subtract to solve this. And of course, that increased rates of subtracting. Right. Um, That's what reminders do, but it didn't increase rates of adding. (laughs) So what that shows is that cognitively, we're already thinking of adding, but reminding people that they can subtract brings new ideas to mind. Um, And then the other. other cool manipulation that we did with those grids was put a scrolling list of numbers going by on the bottom and ask people to press an F every time a five went by. So basically you're distracting them. And the theory there is that, you know, we have these default thinking processes, right? That are are helpful in most cases and that's where we go automatically. Um, And we're even more likely to go to them automatically if we're distracted by something else. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as expected, Um, by the time we got to this study at least as expected when people were distracted by trying to press that f key every time a five went by they became even more likely to overlook subtraction and go with their adding instinct Um, so yeah that that's some examples of the studies but also examples of how we kind of became more confident that this was something systematic and not just something that my um, that happened to me when I was playing Legos with my son,
0: yeah, ma'am. I think you do a really nice job in that uh chapter, kind of spelling out the systematic thinking uh, that you were doing, kind of trying to make sure checking yourself to make sure that you know go even farther
1: um it was um. I mean, it was fun to do that. And I mean, in the chapter, I hopefully make really clear how important it was to have a collaboration yeah. just, you know, from different perspectives, but also from different disciplinary backgrounds. And so Gabe, I mentioned, and then also Ben Converse and Andy Hales. And I also think it's something that, you know, as someone like you who also cares a lot about communicating science to the public, showing people the what's happening here, yeah. right? There is a human element to it, but also there's often like a rigor there that, um is implied in the paper the official scientific paper but is doesn't you know if the, a lay person reading that doesn't understand all the iterations and all the thinking that went into it so it was fun to be able to like write the paper but also write the kind of this is how it the narrative of of how it happened
0: yeah man i think you did a great job um in the book you argue that you know that there's a bunch of forces kind of pushing us in direction and you kind of helpfully break that down into biological cultural and economic so i wanted to tease this apart a little bit like what you know if we think in terms of evolution or like you know like what's the advantage of being primed to focus on more or addition rather than subtraction
1: yeah um and I think you know i'll I'll talk about the evolution stuff, and just the caveat that all of these forces are overlapping yeah. right? um and and intertwined and uh so what I but but by thinking about these forces, I think it also helps us understand what we can do to become better at not overlooking subtracting um so evolutionary forces i mean there's the obvious one that just acquiring food has been good for helping us pass down our yeah. genes um and you know studies of rats or pack rats stockpiling nuts when their stash gets stolen and you're like well that's obvious that's what i do when i um when my pantry runs out of food i I order another instacart delivery but the (laughs) but the um but the pack rats aren't thinking uh and deliberating the way that we are right this Mm -hmm. is just an instinctual thing that they do and so that's a deep-rooted evolutionary instinct we have to uh, we share with them to acquire stuff. Um, The other one that was really surprising, but I I think really powerful to understand how deep rooted it is, is uh, competency. So I knew that this idea of like, okay, I, I can show that I'm doing stuff was important, right? I mean, that's Obviously, a reason we add whether it's physical yeah. stuff to you know, create monuments or um, you know going to a meeting that you're not really needed at, but if you if you show up, you it's obvious that you're doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I was surprised how deep rooted that desire to display competence was, um, and so like the biological example that I use in the book is bowerbirds. These are the birds that build ceremonial nests, yeah. um, and the the male builds a ceremonial nest. The females decide which male to mate with based on the nest, and then the female goes and builds a nest to shelter the <laughs> the kids. Yeah. Um. And so the whole point of that first nest is not for shelter, which is a b- evolutionary need, but for it's showing off. The, the, showing off, Um, but showing off in a very functional way, right? Yeah, this this male that's able to build a nest is probably a male that's going to be good at collecting food. So those are good genes for my kids to have. Yeah. And so this competence is really a deep rooted thing that we're working against in a lot of cases, right? Because you can show competence by taking away. But usually the evidence is invisible, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you if you talk about a a bower bird that creates a, you know, (laughs) um creates a really streamlined nest or like gets rid of the nest um that they're they're doing something but there's not really any evidence that they have of it
0: so those are some of the
1: the powerful um i think biological forces that are um that are kind of pulling us towards more
0: Mm -hmm. um and i want to talk to you a bit about the you know the kind of intermixture of culture and and psychology in a minute but oh one thing i wanted to i I felt like a theme running through the book that you draw out in various places is just that and you already said it with the um the grid experiment you did is that like stress and time poverty and distractions seem to be things that enhance this addition versus subtraction thing so how do you think about that that's a really fascinating issue
1: Oh, that's so reassuring that that's one thing that I wish I had drawn out even more in the book. So it's really nice to hear that you got that from the book. It's a it's a vicious cycle, right? And so when we're busy, which is the very time that we need this, yeah. um, uh, both cognitively busy as in the scrolling numbers study, or as in like you're getting bombarded with a whole bunch of emails, um, yes. that's when we're even more likely to add. Uh, and so you can see this playing out with your calendars, with um, with your cognition, and so I think it's uh, it explains a lot, um, and it also, I guess the it, it means we have to do very real work to to relieve that yeah. and to pull ourselves out of that reinforcing cycle and um, do some subtractions that could actually solve the, the the core problem, as opposed to you know continuing to add. Yeah.
0: I think does that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I think there's a question where the propensity comes from, but I do think you're right that it's like, it's something that gets worse in, when we're, when we're strained. Um, and so, you know, yeah.
1: And I, yeah, that's a great, you know, where the propensity comes from. In addition to there being all these forces that might go into why we overlook subtraction, there are also a, a million, not a million, but there are a lot of cognitive and cultural and economic reasons that are not the thing that we found in our research yeah. that could also explain why we're overlooking sub- subtraction. Hopefully I hit some of the main ones in yeah. the book, but yeah, 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 yeah. Like where this propensity comes from is there are open questions there still and a lot of research kind of indicating, uh, giving us some ideas there too.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about culture for a second and then it kind of brings yeah. some of this stuff together. So. i I think this is a direct quote but maybe i was just taking notes cultures are born from more is that is that something you said uh something close to that yeah so say what say what you or what you what we're getting at with that notion
1: well okay so you know the culture stuff if you think of it kind of at the start of of civilization right Mm -hmm. and um the things that had to be there are um writing, uh, maybe some kind of like organized religion, um, monumental architecture is one thing that had to be there. And so this is literally defined in, you know, Lee, you and I like the built environment stuff and we're, mm-hmm. we're nerds for it. And so I'm like, oh yeah, cool, monumental architecture. But to see it like as this fundamental thing that has to be there for civilization yeah. to be a civilization was kind of uh, a surprise to me when I found that out. But, but basically monumental architecture is, architecture that it's like the bower bird's nest that exceeds any kind of obvious function for passing mm-hmm. down genes, but there is a, like a, a social function to it. Right. And so if you go back to some of this early monumental architecture to, to build temples, to build um, these big structures required people coming together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when people were roaming around as bands of hunter gatherers and groups of 25 uh, to create, this monumental architecture, they actually had to organize themselves and, and, and working groups and stay in one place, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that means, okay, how do we find stable sources of food? And so the, the theory is actually that, you know, not monumental architecture had to be there at the genesis of civilizations, it also might have been the thing that like started civilizations in the first place. Yeah. Now, whether it just had to be there, or whether it was the thing is not really important for what we're talking about here. But the fact that that's actually a conversation is is really important. And so th- those were diff- those were kind of two forms of there's physical more there, right? Yeah. There's the the social more there where, you know, if some of the examples I use in, of subtracting in the book are subtracting rules, subtracting regulations, subtracting, you know, the status quo. There was no status quo before this time that for the civilizations to get built, you had to add physical stuff, you had to add these social structures, mm. you had to add the information. And so, and then the I think probably the place that that direct quote comes from is that like cultures of, uh, yeah, cultures have more expanded, and then they turned into us, right. And yeah. so it's like, you've got this thing where if there was a civilization, like the, the Quakers, for example, that didn't necessarily believe in more and didn't ex- believe in expansion, it got run over by some other civilization mm. that did maybe the you know native americans are a better mm-hmm. example but um so all over the world the 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 civilizations that acquired more land acquired more resources um expanded yeah. and turned into us um and, and that's a big overstatement but you know I've, it's it's hard to find a I think most of the people listening fall into that category.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a nice transition to like, I kept thinking about like, um, I mean, this is the kind of, you know, as someone who does experimental psychological work, um, this is the kind of impossible question to ask, but it's like how much has consumer capitalism and these kind of consumer culture shaped these acquisitive things versus like how we were in i don't know 1825 or you know before then like how do you think about like do you think that these kind of more recent like how our culture works have ended up shaping these dimensions of us or just like i mean what's your gut say here because there's no way to check this ultimately right right
1: right yeah i i i would say consumer culture has a, a huge influence and i do talk about this like you know economic growth dogma. Yeah, exactly. Is, is relatively recent, actually. Yep. And, you know, we were, there was a lot of more happening before this, but this idea that economic growth is a thing to be prized and measure, measuring gross domestic product, which, you know, everyone agrees is not the perfect way to measure progress. Yeah. And what we're interested in is maybe happiness or, you know, quality of life or some other indicator but that that hasn't helped. Yes. You know, when, when you're, when you're when your primary measure is how much are we adding, then you're gonna add. Um, but I would say that like doing this research and, and writing the uh, both the empirical research and the research into like these evolutionary and cultural reasons, the thing that I think is most powerful is this kind of explanation that there's just not that, we're just not surrounded by evidence of subtracting. Uh, uh-huh. And so it's another one of these cycles where subtracting is fighting an uphill battle, right? If mm-hmm. somebody adds something to make the world better, you know, you're walking around your Virginia Tech campus, you see this amazing library. Yeah, you're like, yeah, yeah. Hey, adding a library works to make the world a better place. And you get evidence of this. And then next time you go to make a decision, you're like, ah, oh, you've got this adding example in it. Whereas if you, if somebody, um, Uh, say clears a derelict building from a city, creates a pocket park that looks really natural and um, creates, there's not really evidence that a subtraction created that after 20 years or so, right? It's just like, hey, that's a nice park. Um, And so, uh, and another example of that might be just um, me cleaning up around my house. If I just, if I add a new appliance in the kitchen, my wife's going to notice if I take away one of our 15 appliances, she's probably not going to notice that I like streamlined the efficiency of the kitchen. And so I think at all these levels, Mm -hmm. when you add something, uh, there's just, we're we're bombarded by these reminders of adding. And we know that like when we make decisions, things that are top of mind are more likely to get accessed. And so I think that that is in that, you know, that predates obviously, the economic influence. Yeah. So I think that that's where the um, that's where I would put like most of the blame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like how do you make subtraction more visible? And I'd also say that it's like on a on a case. It depends also on the situation, right? So like the the fact that you know my fifteen appliances in the kitchen that's a consumer thing. Um, yeah. Mostly a consumer thing, probably, and some of these other ones are are more to do with the what's visible and what's not visible. Yeah. I don't know, what do you think? No, I mean like this
0: is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you cuz I wrote uh co-wrote this book called The Innovation Delusion w- mm-hmm. which um you know beats up on a kind of superficial ways of thinking about innovation and then talks about how we neglect maintenance repair. and repair. Yeah. And in that book um I mean this is very deeply related I think. We talk about what we call the ribbon cutting paradox which is like <laughs> awesome. you know like the you know Paul poly- University presidents and policy, you know, and and politicians, elected officials, there's like, you know, you can literally create the like the the photo opportunity, right, to do the ribbon cutting. It's much harder to do that for like maintaining something nicely or or subtracting. Right. I mean, I think that these two things are probably very uh, related in this way. And so like, you know, I I heard about one activist group in New York City um, that was holding like phony uh ribbon cutting things out of like derelict uh subway stations to kind of get at this issue like so you call it the noticeable less and you know and it's like yeah. there's also the issue of the noticeable maintained because if it's just functioning i think it's very hard for people to like grasp that that someone should be rewarded for that you know what i mean
1: yeah no i think the maintenance you're probably fighting an even harder battle because the <laughs> point I make with the noticeable less is like you can make subtraction noticeable, right? You, you just tend to have to do more of it. If I get all the appliances out of my kitchen, my wife's going to notice that whether yeah. she likes it or not is one thing. But, but when you're just like keeping things running, you're yeah, that's, that's even harder. I, but I do think you can, we need to think of other ways to make that noticeable yeah. and sexy. Right. Um, and, uh, I mean, I don't think the books are the solution but i think that by you pointing it out that's really helpful i didn't know that that you had coined the term ribbon cutting paradox because that's something that i talk about in my classes when i'm talking about um, i'm teaching a sustainability class tonight for example and all so much of the focus is on these like fancy green new buildings yeah 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 that's great it's better than building a Not green Mm. building, but most of the opportunity here is in retrofitting what we've got. Yes, how do you (laughs) how do you incentivize that? Um,
0: Yeah, maybe not uh, building the new building is the best thing to do environmentally. You know, most of
1: the time. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I wanted to talk to you, you know, a bit about incentives too. So. I'm, um, I'm reviewing, you know, this guy, Václav Schmiel. Have you bumped into his stuff?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Really? Bill Gates loves him. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: yeah. So I'm review. I'm writing, I'm working on a review of his, one of his recent books called Growth, um, which is just this, he always writes these massive tomes, but it's just about like the, the idea of growth as applied to populations and technologies and systems ultimately. And Mm -hmm. in his kind of very wry way uh you know he it's all about how we can't keep what we're doing what we're doing ultimately with the environment and you know the planet but you know he's it's very light touch and he's just using the numbers to kind of like beat you over the head with it without telling you what to think but i was i was so i was reading your book and and reading his book at the same time and it was like You know, I kept thinking, like, what happens when our neglect of uh, subtraction combines with, like, a relatively recent world full of cheap shit? You know, like, we've (laughs) used mass production to, like, drastically reduce costs of everything from clothing to, like, all the plastic stuff we can buy at Walmart and Target, you know? And then I, w- I was just thinking about your like what you're saying about this propensity that we have, you know, to acquire and to not reduce unless we're into Marie Kondo. We'll talk about that later. Uh, you know, it's just it's a really interesting thing about like w- the propensity you're talking about, wherever it comes from, and then this this changed environment, you know, and like what ends up happening as a result of that.
1: Yeah. And the, I mean, the changed environment is that like humans are the dominant influence on the planet now, yeah. right? So before when it was adding, it's like, you're, you know, you're making the area where your city is look different. Now it's, you're literally changing the the planet and how, it, you know, how yeah. it supports life, um, human life and all other life. So the scale is much bigger. And I mean, the, I'm sure uh, Schmill's book is is great and like I would love to see the the latest numbers on that. I mean, but the the idea that there are limits to growth is not yeah. a, not a new one, no. right? And um, it seems you can argue about where those limits are, but it's hard to argue that there there are limits, right? Yeah, somewhere. And um, <clears throat> and it's you know uh, one of the papers that I cite in the book is this. You know, really nice study that uh, some a team of scientists did about planetary boundaries. So they defined ten planetary boundaries and like where are we on these these boundaries for critical life support systems? And some of these boundaries we've we've already exceeded, um, depending uh, depending on how you how you slice and dice the numbers. Yeah. Um, and so so yeah, I think that and then you know where does subtraction fit in, right? Because there's always been this argument, okay. Well, there's the growth side where people say well we've got to keep growing we've got to, but what they're really saying is we've got to keep innovating and keep making progress yeah. which i totally agree with and then on the then there's another side that's like okay conserve there are limits we've got to kind of um uh be respectful of those limits and these are not like climate change deniers these are both yeah. really well-meaning arguments of ways to make the world a better place right. and um the subtraction I think offers something that isn't considered a lot in the, in those two parallel arguments which is that you know you can make progress you can continue innovating you can continue striving and even maybe using the, the current industrial model yeah. uh, but if you're subtracting to make progress you're by definition not running up against these limits I mean just like Ezra's solution to the bridge had one less block that saved a block, got got us a level bridge. Um, yeah. and you know, you ex- extrapolate that out to other types of subtractive innovation in the real world. And yeah. there might be a lot of untapped potential there. So I think if you look at it on this, uh, Kind of scale of from when civilization started to where we're at now is like now there are way more opportunities to subtract yes we've long overlooked it but also subtracting can be a way to kind of provide the best of both worlds mm-hmm. where you continue to make progress but also um stay within limits and yeah. of course you know this that's not a it's not a simple problem right this is the problem no. of our lifetimes yeah. but i think that's the the small role that taking away can play in it
0: yeah but I think what you say about you know subtraction and addition also um, could could be another reason why so many people want there to be a kind of magic bullet technological solution to the problem instead of looking at subtraction as a as an answer because you know maybe maybe we're just set up to to be biased in that direction, you know? I mean, there's all kinds of other reasons too about the culture of innovation and what we think of invention. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, but it feels like another one in yeah. the mix.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, if even if you look at some of the climate engineering <laughs> proposals, yeah. right? It's like, I mean, there are subtractive climate engineering proposals, removing carbon dioxide from the air being one of them. But for a long time, we've got this problem of climate change, which is really, you know, pretty clear the technical problem is there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere and we're thinking about, okay, how do we add less, right? Yeah. And very little focus on how do you take CO2 out of the atmosphere? Mm. Again, we're focusing on that more now, but we didn't for a long time. Yeah. And even now with climate engineering, a lot of the proposals and, I, you know, I'm not an expert in climate engineering proposals, but the ones where you're like, okay, let's throw a mirror up in space and reflect the sun's rays. You're basically adding something to, yep. um,
0: Geoengineering. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's just for these complex systems that we don't, you know, it's not like anyone tried to screw up the planet yeah. uh, initially by adding CO2 to it. It's that we didn't understand how the system worked and we we changed it and now it's, you know, moving to a different state. But when you don't understand a system, it seems to make more sense to remove things from it that you've added to it, because at least then it's going back towards a state that you understand a little bit. So, you know, I guess the the short way of that point is, I mean, adding CO2 to the atmosphere unintentionally. Look where that's gotten us. um, And then imagine like putting these space mirrors up there and you're thinking, well, we think it should work. But yeah, yeah, what yeah. you're doing is messing with a complex system that you don't really understand by adding stuff. I think all else being equal, taking stuff out of that complex system is going to be better.
0: Yes. The other, um, you know, the kind of the kind of incentive-based thing I was thinking about is, um, so like you in in the innovation illusion, Andy and I talk about this thing we call it the growth mindset, and. Um, mm. One of our heroes in the book is this guy named Chuck Marone, who runs this group, Strong Towns, which is a, a group that tries to make, uh, you know, municipalities like financially viable and and secure. And he cool. he has this cool uh, essay series called the Growth Ponzi Scheme. And one of the things he writes about is that the way U.S. infrastructure policies set up is that the federal government makes it super cheap and even free for localities to borrow or take money to build infrastructure but then what's happening is that municipalities are signing up to to maintain and repair that structure in forever you know until until you re- rest, until you retire the system basically And what he's, Mm -hmm. he and his colleagues have shown is that a lot of times cities have as much as twice the amount of infrastructure as their tax base, okay? Because no one's holding them accountable to that. So it's just like, it was a really, for me, it was like thinking through your book, it was an interesting way where like, I think, you know, the ribbon cutting paradox is one example, but this is a, you know, this is even like the way we set up our, you know, our infrastructural financial systems in a nation is really incentivizes growth and incentivizes addition um, in, in a sense, because we don't, we don't make the costs of addition really evident, you know, but I was just thinking right. about, I mean, I feel like there's all kinds of places are in our culture where we, we really, is in, it's, there's incentives to add and, you know, subtracting is just not incentivized in the same
1: way. Yeah. I mean, the one that, home square footage is another one, right? It's like, if you look at your Zillow home estimate and you're planning a home renovation, it makes zero sense to do a renovation that doesn't add square footage um, because it's all based on how many square feet this thing is. And that's one that, I mean, the infrastructure one is a great example too, but that's kind of more of a policy one. The square footage is like, that's us doing yeah. it to ourselves, <laughs> yeah. right? That's how much we value the, the square footage as opposed to like the quality of the, the space. Um, I like the moral yeah. place
0: of your home edition in the book. It was, uh, uh, it was an interesting theme to come up, uh, to kind of think through.
1: Yeah, it's uh, I ran a subtract for your listener. I ran a contest. um, And this was, you know, before the Lego bridge experiment, but definitely when subtracting was on my mind. And I, for the students here, um, addition by subtraction, we we moved into a small house, Uh, we had moved from a bigger house to a small house when we moved to Virginia and uh, needed to, we knew we were going to need to renovate it. And so I challenged the students to come up with subtractive ideas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody, subtracted anything some came up with some pretty smart ideas within the existing footprint but then I ended up adding about a you know 900 square feet mm-hmm. onto the back of our house and mm-hmm. um you know it's that's our biggest financial investment I mean we needed the space too it's yeah. like we had a a kid and another kid on the way but uh it was really hard to get past that financial thing of like we're not going to invest you know a, a whole bunch of money in this house and not come away with Additional square footage—it yeah. just doesn't make sense. Um, so yeah, there there are all these kind of forces pulling pushing us in that direction. What's the solution for the infrastructure? One is it to um, for things to cost more. I mean, my friends who study water are always saying that you know we just don't pay the yeah. cost of water. <laughs> um, yeah, so when it comes out.
0: I mean, there is uh, there's alternative accounting systems that have been mm-hmm. floated where um, because um, basically uh, existing infrastructure for municipalities isn't counted as a liability currently. So if okay. you like, when you're applying for, um, for new infrastructure funding, if you had to make visible how much, uh, kind of like infrastructure liability you already have on the books, um, you could either set a standard or it might just be the process of making it. Some people have argued just making it visible would lead to, um, change behavior. I think there's a there's an analogy. Some people say that, like, so an analogy I've heard, I've never really dug into this, is that for a long time, um, uh, municipalities didn't have to count pensions as liabilities. So how much money they owed downstream to pay out to workers wasn't basically accounted for in in the financial statements. And once that once they once there was they were forced to do that by the federal government, there was all kinds of change behavior and also bankruptcies mm. so uh you know that's the kind of stuff people have been thinking through is how to represent it right
1: yeah well yeah and then i mean so th- then what do you do and then there's the whole issue of what do you do in places where the the imp- like detroit where the infrastructure needs are, are shrinking and yeah like systematically yeah do that so that you're not paying for infrastructure for a huge city when you actually have a smaller city um yep. yeah important stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the that's an existential kind of issue for our nation is we do have a lot of shrinking communities that have these systems that were built for populations 50 years ago. And it doesn't make sense anymore, but it's hard to convince the federal government to bail out every city, you know, in the that's facing this. So I don't know. It's really tough stuff. So you know, once there's a kind of 12 step moment, AA moment where like maybe someone is convinced they have a problem around this this issue of not seeing subtraction. Like what are the first things you tell people about how they can uh, kind of tack towards, towards kind of seeing subtraction as a solution more often?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, exactly what you just said is the seeing subtraction as a solution more often, right? So just like putting this, In their mind Mm -hmm. a, a reminder that this in fact is an option and i think that's a really important first step and one of the reasons that i like talking to people like you is i mean i think when people listen to a podcast like this they'll be less likely to overlook subtraction when they read the book even less likely to overlook it i mean that's like seven hours with this idea um and then also, but I think it's also really important to put those reminders that it's an option at the point of decision making mm-hmm. because you know, we just because you are reminded to, that you can subtract in Legos, then you want yeah. to, you know, plan your schedule and all of a sudden you're right back to just adding shit onto it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. um, <laughs> So in these important decision making moments in your life or in your in your work life. That may be even more influential. How can you put in place reminders to subtract? So it's like when I'm doing my weekly to-do list, can I also consider stop doings when I'm yeah. um, when I'm adding, you know, deciding what I'm gonna read for the week, uh, which I wish I did more systematically. But can I also decide like, okay, here's information that I'm not gonna look at, or I'm just like gonna not read any more of these emails because the time is finite and the the cognitive processing is all like what you can devote your full attention to is also limited. So, um, so, but the, the main subtracting tip there is putting those things at the putting those reminders that this is an option at the point of making the decision. Um, the other, you know, having done that, I think subtracting first is a really good practice. Mm -hmm. and so, we, i talked. we talked about the complex systems in terms of the planet before but even just if you think about your your life as a complex system yeah it makes sense to strip things away before you decide what to add on because you might be adding something that fixes something that's not a problem if you subtract it in the first place <laughs> yeah.
0: life, you know? <laughs> beautiful i like that that's a good <laughs> reminder right there
1: <laughs> so um i uh yeah so so subtracting first um remembering that you can, uh, that it's add, add and subtract, not just, um, so, I mean, you know, obviously I'm, you know, my role is to remind people that subtracting is an option, but I'm total. I'm, you know, I put an addition on my house. I'm not anti adding. It's just that we already think of that option. And one problem is that when we think of adding, if we think of adding and subtracting as opposites or like exclusive to each other, then when we add something we're like okay well subtracting is not an option well in the scenarios that we're talking about right what we're talking about is when we encounter a situation we try to make it better yeah um these are complementary ways to make change right yeah. so adding can make change so if you thought instead that okay i've just added something hey maybe i should think about subtracting something in my brainstorming or as an option mm-hmm. um, that would also be helpful so thinking add or subtract and then the last one we've talked a lot about these systematic disadvantages that subtracting faces i mean one systematic advantage it has is that you can reuse your subtractions right mm-hmm. and so we can't forget to do that the example i use in the book is is donut holes so and it took a, a long time to figure out donut holes and so you know basically people were frying dough and the problem was that in the middle you've got this soggy piece that's not as good as the rest plus there's not as much surface area to put sugar and and great things um and so somebody Mm -hmm. thought to take the dough out of the middle right and that makes the donuts cook more evenly more places to put sugar but then you've also got the donut hole right you can reuse that and you can sell that and you've got this byproduct so the subtraction leaves you with something left over and i mean the donut holes is kind of a a trivial thing Um, and i suppose you could mush all the dough together and make a donut but um but when you talk about physical things, uh, well, not so well, Ezra's Lego bridge, for example, he's left with two more blocks than I was left with. And those are blocks that you can then use for something else. Um, I and mean, when it's your your calendar, right? You subtract something off your calendar, and now all of a sudden you've got that space that you can do something else with. So, um, so just remembering that, uh, because sometimes we don't subtract, we think, oh, well, I don't want to do it. it. It gives us a negative feeling. Uh, we feel bad about losing something, but you're not doing it. Um, just to take away you're doing it because the end state that you're getting to is going to be better and you can reuse your subtractions in that end state
0: mm-hmm. i love that um how do you think there's like so that it's i like what you say about making subtraction part of the decision making process this is the yeah. same thing that we say about maintenance and repair is that right so often like downstream maintenance costs are not considered by decision makers when they're adding on computer systems and software systems and all this stuff to like universities. Right. And then we end up with these terrible legacy systems and, and stuff like that. So, you know, we, we, we say, um, uh, you know, like making it part of the, an explicit part of the decision-making process. I think that's what, you know, making it a subtraction, like something you have to do go through on the checklist to make sure you're really doing the work, uh, could be really useful.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's a it's a it's a very basic option that we have that we're overlooking. It's the same with maintenance repair that I mean, one of the things when I say add and subtract people will say, Oh, there's also you can like rearrange stuff or and that's kind mm-hmm. of what maintenance and repair is you're, you're working with the stuff you've got to keep it yeah. functioning the way you want it to. And so yeah, uh, considering considering those basic options, um, it seems like we just think about adding
0: yeah so us about like uh learning by subtracting. I really like that yeah. chapter a lot, so I mean, I think this is like when I went into your book, I was thinking about information overload like immediately as like mm-hmm. a a theme, and then you kind of um you know that's that's a place where you end up going. so you know like how do you think about this the role of subtraction and learning and
1: and cognitive work in general? Well, that's why you liked it right i i do hit some uh sts people there right or at least that's some science historians i mean i've got coon in there but also um like and uh, blair and yeah. blair yeah, yeah. Um, well and so Anne blair that's that was really surprising to me right because you like okay this new information uh new the information age we're inundated with emails but she has this great book uh i think hers is too much to know is that it yeah um yeah and uh and she talks about this has been the case since there's been information ever since yeah. when when people started writing there were people warning of like uh oh, this is gonna too much <laughs> too, too much. much information too much yeah. writing is gonna make the mind weary and like really respectful period people um so this was not like a fringe thought uh And so she lays out the ways that people have dealt with this throughout time. I mean, encyclopedias, right? It's like, here's the important information. There's this cool project they did. It's like, what's all the if we had to recreate civilization, that's that's the filter, right, that that if information would help with the recreation of civilization, it goes into this this document. If it doesn't, it doesn't go in. Um, But then, uh, I mean, it it is true that we're facing different situations than people before us have faced, right, with social media and that kinds of that kind of information. And um and we do need to be able to to subtract in in those situations, right? And and take make sure that this doesn't um kind of overload our processing capabilities. One thing that I talk about is I mean the difference between working memory and just uh uh just stuff we know and I mean it's pretty if you look at the research, it, we we can know a lot. We can cram a lot of stuff into our brain, and I, I it, you know, the limits are very less clear there. But um, in terms of the things that we can actually bring to the task at hand, it's not a ton of things that we can remember. This is yeah. why five item checklists are so effective, or um, you know, just a, a bulleted list of things to remember. And if you get past the the seventh bullet, um, you know, you're you're basically defeating the purpose because you're Hmm. you you might be adding something useful. But if it's not as important as the other bullets, you're kind of watering down the whole thing. So um, so like, yeah being really conscious with what we keep in our working memory. And I think this is where we run into, where I at least run into problems. It's like, oh yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting, that's interesting. It's like, yeah, they're all interesting, but what what are the things that I wanna have with me when I'm making decisions? and then the other one is just how hard it is. So that's that's the inundation with information. But then also when we're learning, right? We learn the exact same way. It turns out that we kind of build things. It's just we we have these mental models and we add them. Uh, it's mm-hmm. been called construct constructivism, right? Yeah. And so it's like we're adding stuff that we learn to our mental models, and most of the time it's right. But there's it's really really hard to remove. Misconceptions mm. from our mental models, and so yeah. um, there's a famous psychology example where the researcher joins a cult, and these are people who believe that the doomsday is coming. And uh, I mean, it's just mm-hmm. such a brilliant idea for an experiment, right? Um, they believe the doomsday is coming, and so he joins the cult and uh, sees to see what happens. And it's a good plot, a good idea, right? Because if if the doomsday happens, he's good, he's in with the cult. If it doesn't happen, he's got <laughs> he's got his surefire paper. Um, And uh, of course, it doesn't happen. But as he's sitting in the room, it's supposed to happen at midnight, and people start debating, well, that's not the official clock of the apocalypse, right? (laughs) And and so they're starting to shift their beliefs. And then by about four o'clock in the morning, the cult leader says, it worked. You know, our our faith has staved off the, the doomsday, and people shift their beliefs. So, and that's, you know, cult follow hopefully a lot of us are don't think the same exact way as, as those groups but it's the same process by which my son's belief in santa claus evolves right i say yeah. you know he gets a lego set from santa claus and he's like well this is confusing i didn't know that santa could do plastic and uh and i say, oh well for stuff like that santa works with amazon and so there's <laughs> yeah. two things that he knows about. Yeah. And it's like, rather than subtract the notion of Santa, which yeah. there's other reasons not to subtract that notion, but rather to sub- say, oh, this thing that's in my mental model is is clearly wrong based on this information I've been presented. We kind of smash mm-hmm. stuff together. And then like education scholars, there's been, the you know, the whole history of misconceptions, right? And identifying these misconceptions that people come into the classroom with, it, it makes a ton of sense. It's like subtracting first, right? You've got to Start people on a if if they've got this wrong idea about you know the the sun revolves around the earth you've got to fix that before you start um, teaching them new things but they found that it's really hard to remove misconceptions also it it yeah. takes away some of the I mean the, the sun earth one is a is one that's easy to remove in a non controversial way but there are also like cultural differences that can mm-hmm. um, be problematic if you just try to remove misconceptions. So now people, when teaching, are trying to work much more with how people actually learn, which is like we adapt the the new information to the old um, mm-hmm. information that we have in our mental models. So that's a hard one. I, I don't know if I had a, a surefire way to remove the wrong stuff from your mental models. I'd um, be screaming it from the, from the rooftop. Oh, well, dude, but, we could use that. If you come up with that, uh, killer
0: app, yeah. let me know. Cause, killer uh... <laughs> app. but I do think that,
1: you know, just recognizing again, that this is another place where it's an option. Right. And, you know, yeah. people like us spend a lot of time thinking we could spend some of our time thinking about like, Hey, here's this thing that I used to think, but now I don't think, I mean, I know for me, like some of the rethinking I've done around, um, like the systemic nature of racism has forced me Mm -hmm. to subtract some some beliefs that i have that when i consciously evaluated okay what are the things that i think um it made sense to remove this notion of like a perfect meritocracy or even like a
0: a decent
1: meritocracy so um so yeah removing removing wrong ideas can be powerful and also is hard yes
0: Uh, going back briefly to the um you know, the, the inundation problem. I was just thinking when I was reading the book, I was thinking about like the feeling of busyness and I think Schmiel, again, I was reading this while I was reading Schmiel. I think he says it's like our media consumption is now up to like 5.5 hours a day or something like that um, on yeah. average. Um, and I was just thinking about like how much, how much uh, our, our feeling of busyness could be changed just through, you know, it wouldn't be everything, but that through one change of like killing Hanging out on Twitter or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, how have you thought about that in your own life? And what is your relationship to media at this point, having thought about subtraction for a long time?
1: Yeah, I, um, Cal Newport's book were really helpful for me. He has a book on digital minimalism. He has a newer book yeah. on the world without email, but, it, um, and digital minimalism really helped me with my digital life. Um, and so, like, some, he's, he's pretty, uh, practical with his suggestions. So, one is just, um, you know, don't let the media control you. You control the media. So things like taking the social media off your phone, basically things that people make money when you click on it, take those things off your phone, um, which which makes a lot of sense and kind of helps cut down that, that number and also allows you to still use the, I mean, I've some really useful things have happened for me through mm-hmm. Twitter and LinkedIn, um, and I can still use it for stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's been helpful for me. I think the, uh, I mean, the television is an, an easy one to just kind of cut out almost entirely. Uh, yeah. Um, or cut out binge watching. I mean, it's funny that binge watching has become this thing that like okay that's an acceptable thing to do but right. no other no other form of binging is seen as a positive <laughs> yes. right it's like you wouldn't say i'm going binge drinking or i'm going binge right. eating or i'm going <laughs> binge shopping it's like i'm going on oh, a bender the whole weekend is gone you
0: know yeah. i said like you don't say that as a 40 year old person usually you know right. like <laughs> yeah
1: um yeah even if you when i was 20 like yeah i wouldn't say i was binging right <laughs> it, right <yeah>. so um <laughs> yeah anyway that's uh uh so yeah back to i think that's a really important question of like in this fire hose of information how do you kind of like put limits on it and those are some really concrete ways to do so but i think you know different things work for different people but it is oh that's where i was i wanted to point out yeah you mentioned 5.5 hours of media consumption and then another information stat that stuck with me was that on average, we like process a 1000 words a day, or a 100,000 words a day. And so like, my book is 70,000 words. And a lot lot of those. are So I mean, we're like reading all this useless stuff. And it's just kind of like, put in front of us, whether it's a, you know, a group email, or whether it's an advertisement. And if we can be deliberate about that, I mean, so think about how much better off you'd be if I mean, three days a week, you read a book, instead of encountering this, other information um so, yeah yeah i found the concept of content to be very
0: helpful for me i feel like there's I mean, you kind of allude to it in your own life like being on the elliptical or the yeah. whatever piece of exercise equipment i found that there was just a, there was a propensity in myself to just kind of like fill up all time with like podcasts and all kinds of stuff you know to <clears throat> always have content going and just like uh as i've really moved away from that kind of stuff in general and social media especially i just found my mind to be much calmer and actually able to do the things
1: i want to do uh better you know so um like yeah producing like producing content right and yeah and i think i mean and the level at which you understand something after having produced it is you know infinitely more deeply than if you uh had just acquired it. So yeah, I mean, the, I used to listen to podcasts and watch the news while running on the treadmill. and I mean, I spend a lot of time acquiring content, um, mm-hmm. listening to podcasts and reading books. but I also, you know, when I kind of checked myself, realized that running is when I would process things, right? It's, yeah. that's that's when I would filter out ideas and figure out yeah. which ones, okay yeah this is cool but not relevant to what i'm working on this is the idea i need to focus on and so i never had time for the the processing that kind of turns the ideas to to wisdom or or knowledge at least
0: i liked your use of wisdom too that's a word i've been using increasingly so um What's what's up next, man? With you, you're going from subtract. What's the what's the next? Do you have any new big project, or do you have a million and a half things going on? What's the new thing? No,
1: it really. um, One great thing about like working on the paper and the book at the same time. I mean, this paper took eighteen. It just took a ton of time more than any other paper I'd worked on. Plus, I was working with three other people, and yeah, and the and the book at the same time. It just really showed me the value of. I mean, not cutting out everything else, but really focusing on one good thing, Um, I think, uh, for the professors listening, obviously, we have all these incentives to kind of slice and dice things to show that we're doing a lot and um, kind of uh, focusing on the quality of the the things that that we do is maybe more beneficial for society. Um, And so so yeah, definitely not. uh, I'm trying to think of the next big thing. I'm not quite there yet. Um, Yeah. And it's that's good too. This is like a really unique opportunity for me to get to talk to people like you about the book and see like see what um, what ideas kind of resonate with people, what things kind of bubble to the top, what the reaction is, what's needed. um, Yeah, you know, so so dude, I think you could make hay
0: with this idea for a long time. Personally, I think
1: yeah, if anything,
0: you could do (laughs) follow-ups to
1: it. Honestly, Um, so I've gotten a ton of. and I got to figure out, because I don't really have much interest in this, but I mean, just I've been able to talk to people and the companies that I talk to and, yeah. you know, the you know, they're like, here are five things we're doing. And it's like, man, that would be super useful for other people. And so figuring out a way to like share those really practical tips, but also not spending my career on it. Because I, I mean, I really like this. Um, and I think I'm kind of uniquely positioned to look at this intersection of, um. You know behavioral science and mm-hmm. design. Uh, and so whatever I do next as like a serious project is gonna be in that vein. Um, so anyway, that's yeah. great, but man. i'll I'll keep making hay with subtraction. It's fun. It's fun to see like an idea help people no even if it's not in the way you thought it might. yeah, well, I think I think it is a really unique book and uh, a
0: really creative kind of combination of fields and stuff. so, uh, thank you so much for writing it and for uh, taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Yeah, thank you, Lee, for for your work uh, and also for taking the time to talk to me. This has been a really fun and um, and productive conversation for me. It's helped shape my thinking.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out our work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum coordinator and digital humanities specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening.
1: Thanks.